I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Today, I'm so excited to be talking with Manisha Thakur. Manisha and I um, have been colleagues for many, many years. She actually has over 30 years in the financial services business. Uh, We met at Dimensional many, many years ago. She spent her first 15 years of her career working as a buy-side equity analyst and institutional portfolio manager. And then she saw the light and spent the last 15 years focusing and advising individuals like I do. She's written two personal finance books for women in their 20s and 30s, but I am so excited today. We're going to talk about her latest book, and I just finished it this weekend, called Money Zen, The Secret to Finding You're Enough. So if you're one of those listeners that has trouble finding you're enough, do not pass go. You're going to want to listen to this because we are going to give you some good insights. Manisha earned her MBA from Harvard Business School, MBA from Wesley College, and holds a CFA and a CFP designation. So welcome to the podcast. Is there anything I missed that you'd like to tell a little bit about yourself before we really get into the book? Well, you know, the one thing I will say, Sherry, is that the process of writing the book has literally transformed my life. And we can talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the questions, but it is my deepest hope that people who read the book or, or listen to this podcast will be inspired to make some pretty dramatic changes if they feel like they are trapped in the cult of never enough. And I I guarantee they will, because I have already suggested this to a few friends lightly. In fact, I have a friend that is deep into this cult, and I actually wanted the wife to read it before I proposed it to him, because sometimes, you know, we we might have to do a softer, softer sell on it. But I I think this person really, really needs it. And I I do agree because I wrote a book last year and there's a lot of soul searching. You put it all in the book and it is something you learn about yourself when you write the book. So let's start at the very beginning with the title. What is Money Zen? Money Zen is a term I coined about a decade ago, and I define it as a state of calm, confidence, and clarity around both your relationship to money and the role that you want money to play in your life. Great. And I, so I was so excited to have you on because it's very aligned with the messages that I've talked a lot about is really being authentic and true to your values, not society's values when it comes to money and buying things that will make you happy. Don't buy them just because you think other people will be happy that you bought it and you could put it on Instagram and everything like that. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But um, I want to go into this cult of never enough. 
Uh, you talk a lot about it, and uh, and you were very upfront, very raw in this book because you really talked about your story, and you don't see that often. So I don't know if you mind on this podcast, but can you kind of tell your story how you came to this point of never enough? Sure, I basically face planted uh, when I hit fifty. And I realized as a result of a very severe illness that forced me to take a medical leave of absence from work and be on a prolonged period of bed rest that I had spent my entire adult life as a human doing, not a human being. By that, I mean, it did not matter how much money I earned how many accomplishments I achieved, how much praise I received. It was never enough. And I felt like I was never enough. Or said in a different way, I had fallen prey to the societal messages that tell us the answer to anything that ails us is more do more, have more, be more. And I felt emotionally bankrupt because when you are living your life that way, the finish line is constantly moving forward. You can never catch up to it. And as a result of living like that for so long, not only did I have two near-death health experiences underlying both of which was workaholism, but I found myself divorced, childless, and friendless and hobbyless. All I had was work. And I wanted to figure out how I ended up, how my life went so off course, and what I could do to get it back on track. And the process of doing that brought me to end up spending two years diving into the research. And when I came out, I realized what I discovered would change not only my life, but could be useful to people of a wide range of incomes, ages, and professions. Yes, and I think we also have what we look at externally for people and what they feel internally. And there was a point in the book where I think another pivotal point in your life was there was a woman on an airplane that was dressed immaculately. She was a big financial, you know, mentor, someone that everyone looked up to. And you met her on the plane and you're like, this woman has it all. I want to be like her. She probably has enough. And I know uh, she kind of turned you on to some, um, you know, some anxiety stuff. And and that um, and again, this is in the book. Uh, no. And and it just really made me think that, you know, we look at LinkedIn, we look externally at people and we're just seeing one side. And the fascinating part is you mentioned you did some research and there were four like factors that you came up with. And I would love you to share them because I just found it fascinating in the book. What I realized was that the reason it is so difficult to escape the trap of of never enough 
And the reason why it's so difficult when I'm doing interviews about the book to give three tips to or seven secrets for is that there are four buckets of broad influences that cause us oftentimes subconsciously to fall into never enough thinking. And the first one is what I call small T traumas. We can go into this in more detail, but I'll describe at a high level. Small T traumas are things that happen to us before the age of 25 that cause us to develop behaviors or beliefs that served and soothed us at that time, but then continued on and became runaway traits that that ended up destroying or distorting our ability to be happy as adults. And I'm more than happy to, to kind of run through my experience of that. That was a, a very big part of my journey. For other people, it may be heavily influenced by the second bucket, which I call cultural norms, specifically this notion of moving from jobs to careers to callings, the way we meet someone and, you know, inevitably in the U.S. within the first three questions, it's what do you do? And then you make a judgment about that other person's worth as a human based on that answer. And they're making a judgment on you based on that answer. And so we end up in hustle culture because we're so tightly identified with what we do versus our character and our inner nature. And that can lead us to unhealthy behaviors. The third factor I call societal influences, and this gets right to your Instagram point, which is that we are bombarded with 24 7, 365 images. I call it false financial or counterfeit financial culture. And by that, I mean we look at images on TV and movies that depict characters in in a wide range of jobs. And if and I did go back and do the math, if you take a look, whether it's a police person or a paralegal or an architect, you look at how they dress, the cars they drive, the homes they live in, the way they vacation in these shows and, and movies. And then you look at the average income for those positions and you add up what it would cost to groom, live and entertain at those levels. And almost uniformly, you'd have to earn 30 to 50 percent more than those professions pay. So we're comparing ourselves to something that is economically not feasible unless you finance it with debt. And then on top of it, there's the social media piece, which is so curated. And then the fourth and final factor is biology. And the way to think about that is life has changed dramatically over the last 100 years, last 200 years, if you want to think about kind of modern society. But our brains, they haven't changed nearly as much. And so there are things that 400 to 1,000 years ago 
we are self-programmed to do for survival. And those instincts are still in there. But in a modern world, those instincts can become runaway traits. And so those are the, at a high level, the four buckets. And some people have factors in all four. I certainly did. Some people are predominantly driven by one or two of those factors into this cult of never enough. But that's what the four factors are. Yeah, and the book has a lot more detail, so I would encourage the listeners. And we're going to put the link to the blog um, on the website. But um, so we've got the four factors and there's a lot of people out there feeling um, it's never enough. So what's the secret to finding you're enough? Here's the really interesting thing. I, I roughly alluded to it before, but in in modern society, we want quick answers. We want to read, they, they call them in the media, listicle articles, where you've got five quick bullet points that will solve the problem. And when it comes to a never enough mindset, and I want to emphasize that a never enough mindset doesn't only have to be about money. I interviewed a number of women for the book who bravely shared their raw stories with me. And a yoga teacher said to me, her never enough was the number of students in her class and how many private lessons she taught. And if those numbers weren't what she wanted, she felt never enough. And an academic told me her never enough was around academic papers that she wrote, and then how many times those papers were cited in other journals. So there's a wide range of ways in which never enough can pop up. But the way out and the only way out is to go through, and it's to go through those four steps, understand what they are, and identify in your own past or present life if any of those factors are, to be blunt, tormenting you and resolving those factors by recognizing them and then taking small baby steps that ultimately will result in some pretty big transformations over time. Can you reach this state of exiting the cult, finding you're enough and experiencing money's end? You had to go through these four steps for the never enough. It wasn't like you woke up one day and said, I'm 50 enough. Oh, good Lord. No. I mean, I woke up and I I woke up face planted in a fetal position on the floor, feeling like I had a scarlet L tattooed on my forehead for loser. I just I had a massive midlife crisis as I realized what a shell of a human being I had become. In my case, I very tightly identified my self-worth with my net worth. And in my case, the way that came about wasn't because I wanted to wear Louboutins and wear couture clothing. It started innocuously. I was teased mercilessly in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I'm mixed race. I grew up in a small, very white town in Indiana, and I was chubby. And like a lot of Indian women heading into puberty, I started to develop um, light hair all across my upper lip. 
Now, if you're in India, it's no big deal. You get it threaded. Moms know what to do. But my dad is Indian, but my mom was American or is American. And in a small town in Indiana, they didn't, she didn't know what to do and they don't have threading shops. And so the kids called me cow butt, thunder thighs and mustache mouth for three years. And I felt so rejected that I sought solace in my academics because I was a good student. And then I'd get praise from teachers and I felt seen by teachers while feeling completely ostracized by my peers. And then, you know, as you continue to grow up, what happens? What replaces grades and teachers' approval, but money and promotions? And so behavior that helped me when I was small and young just became a runaway trait and drove me to ultimately believe that my self-worth equaled my net worth. And the face plant came when I was coming back to the office after bed rest and I was in a meeting with a prospective client and we, the client didn't feel comfortable sharing her finances. So the team used my finances and we walked through our discovery process, uh, very similar to the kind of thing you would do, Sherry, going deep into the emotions. And as I sat there telling my story of how I earned every dollar myself and, and what I had done starting from my first job when I worked at a gas station at age 16. And, you know, I, of course, run my numbers six ways to Sundays because that's what we do as CFPs, we know. But in my heart, I did not link my money, which said I had more than enough financial health to get off the rat race, slow it down. But I was emotionally bankrupt. And that, that is what came together and made me realize that something was really wrong and I didn't want to spend the next 30 years, God willing that I'm alive, living like that. And I, and I give you so much credit, Manisha, because that's a, I knew you then. And you had this big job at a big financial firm. You were the head of the woman in wealth. You had an amazing podcast that I used to look at. And and to me, you were a success. And I think, you know, often we go to someone's home, they have a big home on the lake. And what's the first thing we said? Oh, they must be very successful. But we don't dig deeper. And I that's what I loved about the book is that success isn't just your W-2. I mean, that's your grade. That's your grade point average. And I think society, when they give us these grades, I think it was in the book, it gets us thinking, you know, I'm at a 4.0 and now I want X amount of dollars. But success, and I've learned this when I wrote my book, it's all about being true to your values. It's it's your community. It's giving back to the community. It's your relationships with family. And you can have the biggest home, you know, in the Hamptons, but if you don't have family to share it with and community and friends, are you really successful? So, you know, I love that you linked that financial health plus emotional wealth really puts it together. And and again, I think your starting point was knowing that you had the financial health, that you had the flexibility to make these decisions. And all day long, I work with my clients on that because, you know, if you don't, if you're not organized financially and you don't have the resources, then you give up the flexibility. And 
I, I say this on every single podcast and I'm going to say it again. The key to financial freedom is living within your means. If you live within your means, you will have the flexibility to do what you did, to write a book, to speak, to get off the rat race. If you're one of those people that takes your W-2 and has, you know, the creeping up your spending, you keep spending more and spending more, you're never going to get off. So listeners, save money, live within your means and read the book because you're going to be able to get that emotional um, wealth that I think is just as important as your financial health. And I love how you merge those together. So the other part of the book that I just loved was the busy badge, because I always felt so important because I was busy. And I have a chapter in my book that said I woke up and realized my time budget was overdrawn. My daughter tore her ACL. I had to go to her college and help her. And I had to take a week off and I canceled all these appointments and I couldn't believe how much I had on my calendar. And I'm like, oh, this is just unusual. And then I looked the week before and the week after and COVID really helped me in writing the book. But you wrote a lot about the busy badge. And can we kind of talk a little bit about that? Why do so many people feel so important and want to wear that busy badge? When we talk to each other, how are you doing? Generally, this the, the answer is some variation of good, busy, or it might be, oh, really busy, or good Lord, crazy busy. I can barely keep up with everything. And our reaction to that isn't, gee, you need to slow down, achieve less, sit on the sofa, have some brownies and watch uh, an episode of Schitt's Creek. Our reaction- Meanwhile, I love that show, love that show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do too. And our reaction is, wow, you must be very important. And then internally, keeping ourselves very busy gets us accolades, certainly in the the measurement by broader society. So that encourages us not just to want to say we're busy, but to actually be busy. And then the last piece of it is that we live in a world, in the U.S. at least, this is not always the case in all countries. I, I recently went on in a Scandinavian mode right now. So I've spent time in Copenhagen and Stockholm and Helsinki recently. And this is not how they think there. But certainly in my own mind, the way I thought was, if I do this, I will have that and then I will be happy. Whereas the reverse I've come to believe as a result of my research and turning my life 180 is that if we start with the B, what kind of person do I want to be? What, what, what do I want my character as a, a person to be at a soul level? What are my values? What do I care about? And then we say, okay, well then what do I have to do to live a life that's congruent with that character and those values. And then I believe the universe will provide whatever it is that you are meant to have as an outgrowth of that. But the beautiful thing is you're already 
where you wanted to be at the end of the process by starting that way. And so that's why I feel like ripping off the busy badge is one of the most powerful things that we can do in terms of shifting our mind to start getting out of a never enough mindset. Yeah. And that's what I totally related to because I'm a yes person. And of course you feel important when people call you and ask you to be on a board or ask you to chair an event or ask you to help with something. And I now have some rules that I've aligned with my life. The first thing I say, is this something within my values? And is this something that I want to do? And I have been saying no, which is so unusual for me. And I just find that sometimes when you say yes to something, that means you're saying no to something later. So I'm so programmed that something comes up last minute, I couldn't have done it before. So now I try to leave empty days And with the values, there's so often I meet with clients because I do a lot of talking with values and health is one of the most important values. And I'll be, oh, do you work out? Do you get a trainer? Oh, no, I don't have time. You know, I'm I'm working, you know, 60 hours a week and then I'm on these three boards and then I'm doing speaking here and doing this. And I'm like, but are those your values or your health? And it's really changed a lot of the mindset. And instead of being proud of your busy badge, maybe let's be proud of taking time for ourselves and being authentic and being within our values. So listeners, you have our permission. Get rid of that busy badge if you want. And I I think these are all great, great concepts. So, you know, in the book, you've shared a lot of changes to bring you more emotional wealth in your life. But if you could go back in time and kind of give your past self some advice, what would you give to yourself? I would tell myself that emotional health is extremely important. If you do not have money, that is a problem. Now, we live in a society where far too many people are not making a living wage. That's horrible. And it's a whole nother book that who knows, maybe I'll write someday. But this conversation around enough is geared at the two thirds of the bell curve who are making enough to have financial health. If, as you very rightly said, Sherry, you're living within your means because it all starts there. So the one thing my younger self did right was get that piece of guidance from my parents. And they told me, if you live within your means, you will not have a life like everyone else because you won't be financing a lifestyle on with debt. As you earn more money, you won't have lifestyle creep because as your income goes up, yeah, you'll enjoy some nicer things, but you'll start saving significantly more as well. And so that put me on the path to financial health. But what I would tell my younger self is, if you do that in the absence of investing in your emotional wealth along the way, it's the it's a lot like sunscreen. If you start using sunscreen in your 20s, you don't look so different than everyone else. But by the time you're in your mid-50s, you can tell who used sunscreen and who didn't. And the stuff you have to do to look like you did, it's expensive and it's painful. 
And when you live your 20s, 30s, 40s without investing in your emotional wealth, and you wake up and you want to change that, it's the same thing. It is painful. And by that, I mean, I have destroyed so many relationships. My marriage is one, but my friendships, I have missed so many important events from weddings to births to divorce to parents passing and not being there for my friends. And those are things that are really hard to make up for, not to mention all the joy I lost from not having hobbies or recreation. And ironically, by not focusing on emotional wealth, I actually think that I accomplished less over the course of my career because I had no free mental space because I never disconnected from work. Even if I wasn't doing work, I was thinking about work. And so what I would say to my younger self is it's like asset allocation. If you only put everything in one bucket, you are putting yourself at risk. So allocate wisely. And there will be times in your life where financial health will eclipse emotional wealth in terms of your focus, but you should always have some in each. Yes. And I I totally agree because I started my firm 18 years ago. And one of the main reasons was, you know, I was working at a big Wall Street firm, big banks, and I wanted to control my destiny. I wanted to see my kids grow up. I wanted to be involved in my community. And you always say when you get involved in things, you give, but you get more than you give. And I think that it's helped be me being a more well-rounded professional. So I think that advice and I hope I hope our younger listeners will. There is a time when you are young, work very hard, but always invest in yourself. And that's something that I say a lot. And I, I want to just add a funny story because sounds like our parents would have gotten along because you know, living within your means. But um, I dedicated the book to my dad because when I was 16, I made my first babysitting money and I wanted to go to Bruce Springsteen and I wanted fry boots and I didn't have enough money for both at the time. So I asked my dad, which one should I do? I don't have enough money and I, I couldn't get enough babysitting hours. And I thought he'd say, I'll buy you the fry boots. You go to Bruce Springsteen. But he didn't. He said, you can have anything you want not everything you want. Pick what's most important. And that's the whole values. And I've told that to my kids and they just look at me all the time and go, I know I can have anything I want, not everything. Clients tell me that, but it's a very powerful statement. I did go to Springsteen. I actually went to him again uh, a couple months ago when he came to Chicago and uh, I still never got the fry boots, but I probably could get them now. (laughs) But, But you realize it's not that important. You know, I'm not going to ask you what you do or how busy you are. What I really want to know is how do you maximize your return on life? I have a mental framework in my head that I actually came up with. I spent my junior year at Oxford when I was in college. And on the way back from England, I'm on the airplane and I'm reflecting on what I learned And I wrote out on a cocktail napkin, a equilateral triangle. And at the top, I put simplicity. The lower left-hand corner, I put 
small joys, the lower right-hand corner, I had financial independence and kind of in the center was curiosity. And I wanted those things to guide my life. And unfortunately, as I went along, the triangle tipped and financial independence became at the bottom and was driving everything. And so today, what I really try and focus on and make my decisions on are, is this a small joy? Is this enhancing my simplicity? Because those really are the values that drive me because they give me the space then to connect with other people, whether that's immediate family, friends, the broader community, causes. And as one of the women I interviewed in the book, a a life balance expert uh, taught me, connection creates balance. And when you're discombobulated, if you ask yourself, to whom or what do I need to connect to incrementally move towards happiness? That's a really powerful way to live. And I find focusing on simplicity and small joys while maintaining my financial health, but not having that be the driver has completely transformed the way I live and where I live and the cadence of how I live. Great. And that's, you know, I ask a lot of my guests that question and you'd think, oh, going to Italy maximizes my return on life or they they have these big ideas, but it could be just taking a walk. I know you're living in nature right now. You know, it could be looking at water. Water calms me. It could be having coffee with a friend. These don't have to be life changing events to maximize your return on life, but they're just these these little snippets of joy that I really hope that everyone will take advantage of. And I think that that's great advice. I want to mention the name of the book again. It's called Money Zen, The Secret to Finding You're Enough. And where can we find you? You can find me because I'm a fan of simplicity at moneyzen.com. I've got my whole life there. So my books, my socials, and lots of resources for folks who are wanting to learn more about financial health and emotional wealth. And I also have on the site a downloadable, what I call reflective journal that people can use to work through and take notes and ask some questions as you're going through the book, as well as a book club guide for people who might want to continue the conversation in community. So moneyzen.com is where I'm at online. And if you find that you're in the cult of never enough, there's a questionnaire, I think, on there that you can kind of fill out. And there's a lot of great resources because I've I've been to her website. So I hope moneyzen.com. So I was so excited today because when you can talk to the author after you just finish a book, it just crystallizes everything. And it it was so great to hear your insights. Um, the whole reason I started this podcast was to have people use their values to make life's decisions. And I think you are exactly the person that has done that. And really, again, it's it's all about your values and your joy, your emotional wealth. But 
obviously you have to have your financial health. And that's where people like me who are advisors can quantify that for you, give you peace of mind so you can spend all your energy on your emotional wealth. If you'd like to learn more about how you can maximize your return on life, please visit our website at rrcapital.com. That's Rappaport Rikus Capital Management.com, rrcapital.com. And I have my own website that's a little trickier than uh, Manisha's. Um, it's sherrygrecorikus.com. But um, rrcapital.com, you can find me as well. But I just want to thank you. I've been really looking forward to this. I hope I get to see you in person sooner than later. Uh, can't wait for the next book, but I know you're going to have a long runway with this one. So thanks for being on the podcast. And um Let's all have a little money zen and maximize our return on lives and life will be good for you all. Thanks.